0: In our first two episodes about Cymbeline, we discussed the threat of sexual violence that hangs over this play, and the unusual moral transformation that Posthumus undergoes as he repents of his violent jealousy. In this episode, we explore both of those elements with speeches from Yakimo and Posthumus. We also hear both Imogen's distress and her unique kind of strength. Dr. Will Tosh, Research Fellow and Lecturer at Shakespeare's Globe in London, guides our discussion. We begin with a brief analysis from Dr. Tosh of the play's overall style.
1: Cymbeline has an astonishing compactness of verse and imagery, prose. It has a style that's been called impressionistic, which is a little bit like a French impressionistic painting. You sort of get up close and kind of can't quite make out the paint spodges, and then you sort of step back and everything becomes wonderfully clear. Now, that doesn't, strictly speaking, work as an analogy with Shakespeare's literary style in this play, because actually you get up close and, in fact, you see it beautifully clearly and you understand how the sentences work. But there is a sense that you're getting a, a sort of impression of his character's meanings and feelings without necessarily entirely being quite sure that you fully understand them. And then you kind of go back and sort of unpick what's going on. And I've got one example here of the way that Shakespeare's language seems to go into another kind of level in, in this play. And it's from Act Two, Scene Four, when Yakimo uses the evidence that he's gathered on his trip to England of Imogen's bedchamber and comes back to Rome. And there's this terrible scene where Iacomo describes Imogen's bedroom, which he could only possibly have seen if he had slept with her. And he's describing the, the chimney piece in Imogen's bedroom, the decorated stonework around the fireplace. And he says that the chimney piece is, 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 is chaste Diane bathing. So it's a carved relief of Diana bathing. And Iacomo says in description of this beautiful chimney piece, never saw I figures so likely to report themselves. The cutter was as another nature, dumb, outwent her, motion and breath left out. And I love that because it's a very conventional statement that the the, the sculpture was almost as Talented as nature herself, able to make things almost as lifelike as real people. But that incredibly compacted sentence the cutter was as another nature, dumb. Outwent her, motion and breath left out. So the person who cut that stone was like another mother nature, although his creations are silent. He went further than nature, outwent her even though his figures don't have motion and breath. And so many words seem to be left out of that sentence. But yet you get, most beautifully, even though the person who's saying these lines is dreadful, most beautifully you get that sense. The cutter was as another nature. Dumb. Out went her. Motion and breath left out.
0: Our first speech comes from Act Two. Yakimo has made a wager with Posthumus that he can persuade Imogen to break her marriage vows and sleep with him. Imogen rejected Yakimo when he propositioned her. Now, he has devised another way to win the wager. He hides himself in a trunk in Imogen's bedroom and, as she sleeps, he emerges to observe her bedroom and her body.
2: The crickets sing. And man's o'er sense repairs itself by rest. Our Tarquin thus did softly press the rushes, Ere he wakened the chastity he wounded. Cytherea How bravely thou becomest thy bed, fresh lily, and whiter than the sheet, that I might touch but kiss, one kiss. Rubies unparagon. how dearly they do it. 'tis her breathing that perfumes the chamber thus. The flame of the taper bows toward her and would underpeep her lids. To see the enclosed lights, now canopied under these windows, white and azure, laced with blue of heaven's own tint But my design, to note the chamber, I will write all down. Such and such pictures, there the window, such the adornment of her bed, the arras, figures why such and such, and the contents of the story. Ah, but some natural notes about her body above ten thousand meaner movables would testify to enrich mine inventory. O oh, sleep, thou ape of death, lie dull upon her, and be her sense but as a monument thus in a chapel lying. "'Come off, come off. <laughs> "'As slippery as the Gordian knot was hard, "'tis mine, "'and this will witness outwardly "'as strongly as the conscience does within "'to the madding of her lord. "'On her left breast "'a mole sank spotted like the crimson drops in the bottom of a cowslip. Here's a voucher stronger than ever law could make. This secret will force him to think, I have picked the lock and tamed the treasure of her honour. No more. To what end? Why should I write this down that's riveted, screwed to my memory? She hath been reading late The tale of Tereus Here the leaves turned down Where Philomel gave up I have enough To the trunk again And shut the spring of it Swift Swift, you dragons of the night That dawning may bear the raven's eye I lodge in fear Though this uh, heavenly angel, hell is here. One, two, three, time,
1: time. Yakimo's speech in in Act Two, Scene Two is, is completely extraordinary for lots of reasons. It's extraordinary in performance, not least because... Invariably, there'll be a a sort of knuckle-clenching pause between Imogen falling asleep and the the sort of lid of the trunk creaking open and Yakimo clambering out, just, you know, skin-crawling. And we have this uh, sort of uh, exquisitely hideous speech, you know, a speech that draws on centuries of poeticised seduction, poeticised erotic violence, poeticised assault, I guess, to think about the delicacy of of the uh, alleged delicacy of what Yakimo's doing. He starts by comparing himself to, in fact, another Shakespeare character, although of course a very well-known one, who is Tarquin, who is the villain of Shakespeare's narrative poem, The Rape of Lucrece. It's about a noble Roman lady who takes her own life after being raped by Tarquin. And in fact, the setup in terms of the reason Tarquin assaults Lucrece is that her chastity had been sort of, sort of sung from the rooftops. And so he sort of, you know, takes that as a sort of cause. So, Yakimo is is making a very apt comparison here by comparing himself to Tarquin. And it it brings in that kind of voyeuristic kind of male gaze quality that we get in Rape of Lucrece and and in in eroticized narrative poems in the Elizabethan period in general, really very much kind of turned to a male gaze and a male readership. And that's sort of what, what Yakimo is doing with this speech. He's sort of narrating in a kind of self pornographizing way, I guess, what he's doing both in terms of his movement through the room, but also in terms of what he imagines or would like to do with, with, with Imogen, who's lying in, in her bed. It's a funny speech as well, because it needs to be read in parallel with the later speech, when Iacomo relays to Posthumus what he allegedly did and what he saw in Imogen's chamber. When Yakimo then relays this to Posthumus, he's making up most of what he's doing because he's saying, I slept with your wife. But he's crucially not making up what he saw. So we're told later on about the room and about the decorations in the room, which don't actually come out in this speech here, other than for Yakimo to say, you know, I I will note the chamber, I'll write it down, I'll see what pictures there are, and what the window looks like, and things like that. But we're told later that the decorations include uh, a depiction of Cleopatra meeting for the first time Mark Antony, and Diana bathing in the forest beheld, we assume, by Actaeon, the story from, from, of its metamorphoses. So in both of those instances, we're getting references to infamous moments of male beholding of women. One of them licit you know, Mark Antony and Cleopatra, one of them very much not, which is Actaeon beholding Diana bathing with her nymphs. So that sense that Yakima is presenting both to us as an audience and to posthumous this sort of literary background to the form of assault that he's planning. Uh, We see that also in the the reading that, that Imogen has been doing before she fell asleep. She's evidently reading a copy of Ovid's Metamorphoses and she's reading the tale of Tereus, uh, and Philomel, a notorious and unpleasant metamorphic tale that Shakespeare had already sort of essayed in Titus Andronicus about a, a king who, Tereus who rapes Philomel, then cuts her tongue out so she can't describe her assault to anyone and seek justice. So, so there's so much kind of cramming into this moment with Jakemey, this speech that it's quite easy to sort of be a bit kind of bedazzled by its sort of literary heritage and the fact that Yakimo is kind of drawing on all of these sorts of precedents, to forget what he's doing, which is crawling out of a trunk, stepped around like a thief and a peeping tom, and then gets close enough to Imogen to note that there are blue veins on her eyelids, to note that when he lifts up the bedclothes and stares at her naked body, that she's got a mole on or just underneath her breast. That's the most kind of squalid, awful thing. It's not Ovidian. It's not a sort of Shakespearean, you know, erotic narrative poem. It's perverted and really messed up. So we're getting both of those kind of themes and values kind of crashing through this speech. At the same time, if we imagine it performed, we've got that sort of, that that turbo charge of tension of he's in her room. Is she going to wake up? What is he going to do? If we're watching this, we don't know what his, for the first time, we don't know what his intentions are. We see an incredibly vulnerable woman lying alone in bed, with a man prowling around her bedroom, you know, absolutely terrifying. The, 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 the speech kind of in the whole scene ends by kind of pulling that tension back into the box again. So Yakimo says, I have enough, he's got enough information. And he narrates himself back into the trunk where he also hears the, 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 the clock strike three. So we have that wonderful compression of time. We, we just heard the clock strike midnight. Now we you know, a few minutes later, we hear the clock strike three, which tells us he's either been in that box for hours or he's been prowling around for hours. And then both of those items of furniture are kind of pulled off stage and, 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 and the scene ends. And we assume audiences let out the most enormous kind of exhalation of breath because it is that kind of scene that, that makes you, I think, forget to, forget to breathe.
0: Our second speech comes from Act 3. Thanks to his intrusion into Imogen's bedroom, Iacomo has been able to convince Posthumus that she has been unfaithful to him. Posthumus writes a letter to his servant Pisanio, telling him to kill Imogen. At Milford Haven, Pisanio shows her the letter. The devastated Imogen begs Pisanio to carry out Posthumus' order and kill her, but... In the same speech she shows an unusual strength and shortly after this speech she will set off on a new life dressed as a boy in the wilds of Wales.
3: Why I must die and if I do not by thy hand thou art no servant of thy master's. Against self-slaughter there is a prohibition so divine that cravens my weak hand. Come, come. Here's my heart, something's afore it. Soft, soft, will no defence, obedient as the scabbard. What is here? <laughs> the scriptures of the loyal Leonatus, all turned to heresy. Away! away corrupters of my faith you shall no more be stomachers to my heart thus may poor fools believe false teachers though those that are betrayed do feel the treason sharply yet the traitor stands in worse case of woe and thou posthumous that did set up my disobedience gainst the king, my father, and make me put in the contempt the suits of princely fellows, shalt hereafter find it is no act of common passage but a strain of rareness. And I grieve myself to think, when thou shalt be desieged by her that thou now tirest on, How thy memory will then be panked by me. Prithee, dispatch, the lamb entreats the butcher. Where's thy knife? Thou art too slow to do thy master's bidding when I desire it to.
1: So like we had uh, Iacomo echo the rape of Lucrece and Tarquin as he begins his criminal investigation of Imogen's bedchamber and her body earlier on, Imogen's response to the discovery of Posthumus's vengeance, his desire to kill her, her first response kind of also echoes the Lucretian mode, I guess we might call it, to say, you no know, that... Having lost her reputation and her chastity, she might as well die. Now, the, the, the thing about Lucrece is that she's raped by Tarquin, and she says she cannot live without her chastity. And Omgen hasn't had that experience. And what she is responding to is the uh, uh, apparent, the ostensible absence of love from her husband. This this sense that she is now regarded as uh, adulterous by him means that her heart's just been kind of completely ripped out but I do think there's a real presentation of Imogen's strength here I know it sounds slightly counterintuitive and real strength of character here which is not to say that suicide is a sort of strong way out although I'm sure in some senses it might be regarded as such or that Shakespeare would have understood or his audience would have understood suicide as a strength but there's something here that that is quite unusual in Shakespearean heroines and really quite unusual in Imogen where she is sort of calling on Posthumus the absent Posthumus and saying it was you who made me love you you who made me give up other kind of princely suitors and made me disobey my father a kind of sin you know to marry you even and and she's not regretting it at that point I think and and she says again to the absent posthumous you will hereafter find it is no common passage, but a strain of rareness. Now that's Imogen talking about herself and saying, You will find that my resisting my father, disobeying him, and marrying you, posthumous, instead of these other princes I could have married is not an ordinary thing to do. It is rare. It's great and pure and brilliant
0: this word rare can be a key to understanding imogen's growth as a character earlier in the play when cymbeline berated her for disobeying him and marrying posthumus she tells him i'm senseless of your wrath a touch more rare subdues all pangs all fears she uses the word rare to refer to the unique pain of losing posthumus when he is banished she also tells her father in the same scene that Posthumus is a man worth any woman, Oh, abides me almost the sum he pays. Then she represented Posthumus as being worth far more than herself. But here, when she uses the word rare again, it is her own worth she insists on, a worth she wants the absent Posthumus to recognise.
3: We
1: don't really see Shakespearean heroines, turn on themselves in that way and accurately gauge their worth and say, I did an amazing thing. And I think that's worth noting here, even at this point of despair, where Imogen is saying to her servant Pisanio, look, you have to kill me. I have nothing to live for. She is able in the same breath to say, as it were to Posthumus, I did an amazing thing. And you will learn that in time as you mourn me. I did an amazing thing. So I think, yes, we can see this as someone kind of deciding they have no reason to live after their man leaves them. But actually there's a pride there as well, which I think has some real strength and power to it, which I actually see in Imogen in the course of the rest of, of the play. I think it's easy to see her as a character who at this point in the play, kind of becomes acted on rather than acting and, and, and she sort of goes sort of any which way she's told. And I don't really see that. I, Yes, there is a difference, I think, between someone, a character like Rosalind, you know, dressing as a a, a boy to flee the persecution of the court and heading into the Forest of Arden and perhaps a difference with, with Viola finding herself on a foreign seashore and, and dressing as Cesario. Neither of those characters are in a position of kind of post-trauma when they make that choice. This scene, it's a massive journey for that character who starts off being like, where's Milford Haven? Where's Milford Haven? And by the end is like, I have, I am gone. I am nothing. I have lost everything. And so really, I think to expect within that scene for the character also to say, I'm gone, I have nothing. I I am dead. Hey, I'm going to dress as a boy now. Uh, it, that, for me, would be really implausible from a character point of view. Here, instead, we have Pisanio, the faithful servant, who says, oh, I've got this bag of boys' clothes for you. Go go and dress yourself as a page. So, yes, it's his idea, not hers. But then she's there kind of galloping off to Milford Haven, walking for three days straight, and only then kind of deciding to sit down and meet the boys in the cave. So there's there's a definite strength there and strength of character, which takes her, you know, well beyond the orbit of a courtly princess, puts her in the, the train of the Roman army, puts her bang in the middle of the battle, makes more or less kind of every character with whom she comes in contact fall in love with her. There is sort of, there's an awful lot going on in Imogen, which I, I don't think is indicative of a character who kind of steps back and gives up.
0: Our final speech comes from Act Five. Pisanio has actually helped Imogen escape to Wales, but has also sent Posthumus a bloody cloth to make him think that he has killed her. Posthumus still believes that Imogen was unfaithful, but when he receives the cloth, he responds with forgiveness for Imogen and bitter repentance for what he's done. This unexpected ability to repent and forgive may suggest, as discussed previously, some new infusion of divine grace. But it is also a sign of this play's distinct representation of male sexual violence and its ramifications.
4: Yea, bloody cloth, I'll keep thee, for I wished thou shouldst be coloured thus. You married ones, if each of you should take this course, how many must murder wives much better than themselves for wrying but a little? Oh, Pisanio, every good servant does not all commands, no bond, but to do just once. Gods, if you should have taken vengeance on my faults, I never had lived to put on this. So had you saved the noble Imogen to repent and struck me. Wretch more worth your vengeance. But alack, you snatch some hence for little faults. That's love to have them fall no more. You some permit to second ills with ills each elder worse and make them dread it to the doer's thrift. But Imogen is your own. Do your best wills and make me blessed to obey. I am brought hither among the Italian gentry, and to fight against my lady's kingdom. Tis enough that, Briton, I have killed thy mistress. Peace. I'll give no wound to thee. Therefore, good heavens, hear patiently my purpose. I'll disrobe me of these Italian weeds, and suit myself as does a Briton peasant. So I'll fight against the part I come with. So I'll die for thee. Oh, Imogen, even for whom my life is every breath a death and thus unknown, pitied nor hated, to the face of peril myself I'll dedicate. Let me make men know more valour in me than my habits show. God's put the strength of the Leonati in me. To shame the guise of the world, I will begin the fashion. Less without and more within. So Posthumus, he's
1: a funny old hero, really, in many ways, because he stands out, I think, in in Shakespeare's sort of parade of chief characters. Um, He disappears for a lot of this play. Like, he is not in Acts 3 or 4. He and Imogen, his wife, have precisely two scenes together. The rest of the play, they are parted by hundreds of miles. And the betrayal and the revenge happens by correspondence. This all happens remotely. So Posthumus disappears for most of the play. And he also has his his sort of moment of psychological turnaround off stage. We, we see at the end of Act Two, where he has pledged to tear Imogen limb from limb in front of her father and the English court. This kind of appalling, inexcusable, vision of, like, you know, revenge-killing, again, that terrible phrase, which we're sadly familiar with from Othello, from other plays, and from the world. But that's the last time we see him, raging and ranting in Rome. We get various letters kind of floating around from, from Posthumus to Pisanio and, and, and Imogen. And then we see him at the start of Act Five just saying, I was wrong. Posthumus has undergone his... His sort of psychological renovation, his ethical renovation we haven 't seen that process. We gather that that he believes that Imogen is dead he 's kind of had word from Bassanio who has claimed that he 's done as he was bidden and, and, and killed her in revenge and It is that news we assume that has sort of cleaned from his mind the idea that her infidelity was an issue. So we get it's sort of odd kind of setup that this hero who has disappeared for two acts, when like a lot has happened, suddenly kind of pops back up in act five, having been through clearly the mill. And I think there are lots of ways we can look at this and think about it from the point of view of character psychology. An actor playing posthumous obviously has to make a lot of decisions about what he's gone through in the offstage time. And that's the privilege of an actor, they can make that journey. But I think it's sort of interesting to think in slightly more kind of abstract terms about the journey in that slightly terrible phrase, but sort of the journey of the story and also the journey of posthumous, but also the journey of posthumous as imagined through various other avatars, because yeah, we don't see Posthumus for acts three and four. Yes, he seems to sort of disappear in his rage and then kind of come back in his grief and repentance. But, of course, we do see Clotten, and we see that journey, again, that terrible word, in the course of the bit of the play that Posthumus isn't in. And Clotten spends a lot of that bit of the play wearing Posthumus's clothes. And I I don't think that Posthumus and Clotten are, for example, supposed to be doubled by the same actor, which is sometimes something that's been explored in performance. I don't think they're supposed to be the same person, at all, and I don't think that that's really what the play is saying, but I think we should pay attention to the fact that that Clotton and other people around him, notably Imogen, register the fact that they look very alike now, not necessarily in terms of facial appearance. Imogen thinks that Clotton looks like posthumous when he's lacking his head but she really draws attention to their physical similarity and their similarity of physique, and particularly their kind of martial prowess. When he's dead and, and being embraced by Imogen, she's there kind of saying, it's the thigh of Posthumus, the martial leg. She's sort of getting from that body, the fact that she's holding her husband. And it's, I mean, it's pushing it slightly, but I kind of feel like that, what Clotten undergoes that sort of hideous threat that he starts off with when, in sort of revenge against Imogen and Posthumus, he plots to make a journey to Milford Haven where he'll kill Posthumus in front of Imogen's eyes, rape her, and then beat her back to London. It's kind of vicious, appalling fantasy that he's indulging in. And to do that, he'll kind of go dressed as as Posthumus and send Imogen mad, now, it's, all, it's, it's not that different to what Posthumus has kind of imagined himself in, in Rome, where he's like, I'm going to tear her limb from limb in front of her, her father. So Imogen is the kind of victim of these sort of fantasies of assault from both of these men one of whom she loves and is unjustly accused by, the other of whom she absolutely loathes and where it's very clear through the play how much she loathes him. But in a sense, both of them are kind of, that sort of male violence is coming from a similar place of, you know, Posthumus' sense that he's been sexually slighted, Clotten's sense that he's been sexually slighted because he's been turned down by Imogen. So we see where it ends with Clotten, his 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 ignorance, his stupidity, his vulgarity, his violence, his misogyny, ends in him being decapitated and his head tossed into a river and not mourned. Now, that as a sort of consequence of those violent actions and thoughts... I think, kind of get landed on posthumous. You know, there's a sort of sense in which there's a kind of transfer of that process to the absent posthumous, who then we see him in Act Five, and it's sort of like he's kind of been through this, he's sort of been through what, you know, Clotten's sort of had as in consequence of his actions. And we then see him as this sort of morally renovated person. So in strict naturalistic, sort of realistic terms, yeah, you get this slightly odd Popping up of someone who, the last time we saw him an hour or so ago, was threatening to kill his wife, and now he believes it's apparently happened. He's filled with remorse. But I think there is something that the play is doing which is suggesting a sort of generalized kind of male failure of sex, of of sort of, yeah, a a male failure of ethics, which we see expressed in one way by Clotin and another way by Posthumus.
0: We close with a bonus rendition of Yakimo's speech by actor Donald Sumter.
5: The crickets sing, and man's all labored sense repairs itself by rest. How Tarquin thus did softly press the rushes ere he wakened the chastity he wounded. Cicero. <sighs> How bravely thou becomes thy bed, fresh lily and whiter than the sheets that I might touch But kiss One kiss <sighs> Rubies unparagon, how dearly they do it. <laughs> "'Tis her breathing that perfumes the chamber thus. "'The flame of the taper bows toward her "'and would underpeep her lids to see the enclosed lights. "'Now canopied under these windows, "'white and azure-laced with blue of heaven's own tinked. "'But my design, to note the chamber, "'I will write all down, such and such, "'the pictures there, the window.' Such the adornment of her bed. The arras, Figures why such and such and the contents of the story. Ah. Hmm. But some natural notes about her body. Above ten thousand meaner movables will testify to enrich mine inventory. O, oh, sleep, thou ape of death, lie dull upon her, and be her sense but as a monument thus in a chapel lying. Come off, come off. As slippery as the Gordian knot was hard, tis mine, and this will witness outwardly, as strongly as the conscience does within, to the madding of her lord left breast, a mole, sank spotted like the crimson drops in the bottom of a cowslip. Here's a voucher stronger than ever law could make. This secret will force him think I have picked the lock and tame the treasure of her honour. No more to what end? Why should I write this down? It's riveted, screwed to my memory. She hath been reading late the tale of Tereus. Here the least turned down where Philomel gave up. I have enough. To the trunk again and shut the spring of it. Swift, swift, you dragons of the night. The dawning may bear the raven's eye. I lodge in fear. Though this a heavenly angel, hell is here. One, two, three. Time.
6: Shakespeare for All is written and produced by Maria Devlin-McNair. Executive producer is Zachary Davis. Associate producer and narrator is Gemma Deer. Original music and sound design is by Jack Pombriant. This episode featured performances by the following actors. Mark Courtley and Donald Sumter, for Yakimo, The Crickets Sing. Gabrielle Shepard, for Imogen, Why, I Must Die. Stuart Vincent, for Posthumous, Yay, Bloody Cloth. For this course, information was drawn from and ideas were inspired by the following sources. Pamela Bickley and Jenny Stevens. Cymbeline, an experimental romance. Marjorie Garber, Shakespeare after all. Cynthia Marshall, a modern perspective, Cymbeline. Robert S. Miola, Rying but a little. Marriage, punishment, and forgiveness in Cymbeline. And the following editions of Cymbeline. The 2005 New Cambridge Shakespeare, the 2016 Norton Shakespeare, and the 2017 Arden Shakespeare. Shakespeare for All is a Lyceum original production and available wherever you get your podcasts. Learn more about the show by visiting shakespeareforall.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.